All right, all right. Welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast. We try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavishers Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest supplier of surface combat ships to the U.S. Navy. HII is delivering the advantage. Learn more about HII at the Surface Navy Association's 36th National Symposium in Crystal City, Virginia, from January 9th to 11th. And by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Coming up, one of the key companies crucial to the development and fielding of autonomous surface vessels is Lidos. Two of that company's top officials are with us to shed some light, not just into the complexities of developing ships able to operate without people aboard, but also what they're ready to do today. But first, a look at Naval News this week. Houthi launched attacks targeting shipping in the Southern Red Sea, the Babel Mandab Strait, and the Gulf of Aden continued over the past week. According to U.S. Central Command, as of January 5th, there have been 25 series of attacks since November 18th, using a variety of weapons and platforms, including anti-ship ballistic missiles, land attack cruise missiles, so-called one-way suicide unmanned aerial vehicles, and for the first time in this series of attacks, a one-way attack unmanned surface vessel. The USV launched on January 4th, exploded in international shipping lanes, but caused no damage or casualties. An Iranian frigate, the Alborz, entered the Red Sea on January 2nd to add complexity to the situation. With a support ship, the Alborz constitutes Iran's 94th flotilla, or escort mission, ostensibly on anti-piracy patrol in the region. Iran is backing and supplying the Houthi rebels in Yemen who are using weapons made in Iran and elsewhere. The United States on January 3rd issued a joint statement with 13 partner nations condemning the Houthi attacks and the seizure of commercial ships and declaring the Houthis, quote, will bear the responsibility of the consequences should the actions continue. To date, however, neither the U.S. nor its allies have carried out any strikes on Houthi forces launching the attacks. Notably absent from the nations signing on to the joint statement is France, who has military forces in the region escorting French-operated or owned ships. Some estimates have the number of commercial merchant ships affected by the Red Sea crisis to be well over 400 ships, with the overwhelming majority being diverted around southern Africa rather than use the Red Sea and Suez Canal between Asia and Europe. The U.S. Navy on January 2nd recognized the crew of the destroyer USS Kearney for their actions against Houthi-launched aerial drones and missiles. U.S. Naval Forces Central Command Commander Vice Admiral Brad Cooper came aboard the ship to present individual awards and award the entire crew a combat action ribbon. The Pentagon said January 1st that the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group would be released from extended duty in the Mediterranean Sea and return to the U.S. East Coast. The group, which deployed in May, was due to return in late November, but was twice extended due to the Israel-Hamas war. 
USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, the other deployed U.S. carrier in the region, was last publicly reported as operating in the Gulf of Aden near the Baba Mendeb Strait. Turkey on January 2nd blocked the transit of two newly acquired Ukrainian minesweepers attempting to enter the Black Sea via the Turkish Straits. Turkey cited the Montreux Convention, preventing warships of warring nations from using the Straits, apparently the first time since Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014 the treaty has been cited. The Ukrainian ships Chernihiv and Cherkasky are the former British Royal Navy Sandown-class mine hunters Grimsby and Shoreham, transferred in mid-2023. The deployed carrier USS Carl Vincent, with ships from her strike group, maneuvered with three Philippine Navy warships January 3rd and 4th in the South China Sea, a series of exercises that China, locked in a series of territorial disputes with the Philippines, called a military provocation and muscle flexing. The Philippine Navy released images of a Chinese warship closely monitoring the maneuvers. On January 5th, the Vincent called at the Philippine capital of Manila for a port visit in another demonstration of U.S. support. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. Well, we are fortunate to have with us today two guests, intimately familiar with the art of building ships. Dave Lewis is Senior Vice President of the Maritime Business at Latos. He is a retired Vice Admiral in the United States Navy, a former Director of the Defense Contract Management Agency, Commander of the Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command, Program Executive Officer for Ships at Naval Sea Systems Command, among other distinguished postings. And he is now the President of the American Society of Naval Engineers, or ASNI. Dan Brinsinghoffer is a Vice President in the Maritime Systems Division at Latos, having begun his career at that company as the Senior Manager for Unmanned Surface Systems. A retired captain in the U.S. Navy, he has extensive experience in developing new ships, including the littoral combat ship, and as program manager, he established the current frigate program office to build the new Constellation-class frigates. He's also a surface warrior, having commanded the destroyer USS Pinckney. Gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate the uh, invitation and the opportunity to chat. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. Happy to be here. All right. Well, I'd like to start with one what I think is one of the biggest developments of 2023, which was the Trans-Pacific Deployment of Unmanned Service Division 1, the U.S. Navy's USD-1. It's not an exaggeration to say that this is an unprecedented event. Four vessels, Sea Hunter, the Seahawk, the Ranger, and the Mariner, all autonomous unmanned vessels, left Southern California in May, operated in Hawaii, crossed the Pacific first to Guam, then to Japan, weren't done yet. After operating out of Yokosuka for several weeks, the division transited the South China Sea to Australia to take part in a major exercise with the Australian Navy, and they're currently headed home. All four vessels use LATOS systems, and LATOS is working under a NAVC task order to manage and operate and maintain U.S. Navy overlord and medium unmanned service vessels. So obviously you've got an inherent connection here on multiple levels, both of you. Um, Dave, I'll start with you. Um, what does this deployment mean for efforts to get beyond experimentation and truly begin integrating unmanned vessels into Navy operations? Sure. One correction. Uh, Mariner is using an L3 uh, Paris ah. autonomy. So three of the ships uh, are Lidos autonomy and one is an L3 Harris autonomy. All four ships were designed 
uh, by Lidos and built under Lidos uh, program management. So uh, a clarification there. So we've gotten um, so we've gotten some uh, comparison stats, which which I can't talk to right now. But uh, so we've operated on a couple of different autonomy systems in a, in a variety of regimes. So I agree with you. This is a truly historic event. Uh, within Lidos, uh, we equated uh, Lindbergh's first crossing of the Atlantic, proving that it can be done. Uh, my view is it's uh, maybe more like uh, the great white fleets, the great autonomy fleets, proving that America has entered a new uh, era of maritime warfare. So uh, pick your uh, pick your analogy there. Uh, I think what it, the message is that autonomy works. Autonomy is proven in the surface fleet. Uh, the ships have uh, sailed well over 10,000 miles. They've operated under all sorts of sea conditions. Uh, they've operated with allies. They've operated with Navy ship. Uh, they have proven the mothership concept. They've proven sustainability. Uh, they're 100% commercial, and they have been sustained in a 100% commercial manner successfully across, well, since August. So what is that? Uh, five months so far. So have performed superbly. Uh, we're seeing, at least on the autonomy side, 98% uh, reliability on our autonomy systems. Uh, they have been uh, challenged in every possible way I can think of. The Western Pacific is not like Southern California or the Caribbean, and they have done uh, well, not without issues, but uh, all the issues uh, been resolvable uh, through the Navy or, or through, uh, through Lidos. And, uh, and I think that's a key thing. Um, the Lidos system that three of the ships used called LAVA, Lidos Auto Autonomous Vehicle Architecture, has full government purpose rights. So the Navy already owns a proven surface autonomy system had thousands of interactions with surface ships, other surface ships, uh, safe interactions. Uh, and that's been proven over and over again, both before the deployment and obviously during the deployment. Um, and uh, so I think they, I agree with you that the surface autonomy fleet is ready to transition to full operations. Dan, do you want to add something to that? Over. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it, and uh, and thanks again, Chris, for for having us. Let us let us spend some time with you here. Um, I'd like to take a step back. Right, the the deployment itself was is, is a historic thing. Um, the question fundamental to to the unmanned areas, particularly with surface ships, is is why would you do it? What, what what's the advantage? Um, and and I I I look at it from two perspectives. Right, the only reason you're going to bring in uh, unmanned capabilities is to either add capability where you add capacity and you add capability by, because the vessel's unmanned, it has the ability to do things that a manned vessel couldn't do. In the case of a UAV, a uh, picture of the aircraft can pull more Gs without a pilot on it. Um, that's adding capability. Um, there are analogous systems with undersea unmanned vessels uh, and surface vessels. But the other piece of it then is capacity. Um, you're able to execute a mission um, for less, which adds capacity uh, to the fleet. Um, when you start talking about what the fleet makeup looks like, um, and you hear uh, the Navy referencing uh, the fleet, how they're going to build it out and how they're going to change the numbers and, and add the capacity, it's in order to execute mission. So when we talk about 
um, unmanned surface vessels. Specifically, we're talking about meeting the mission needs um, and then in the, in terms of adding capability and capacity. So whether it's a, an ISR node, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance node, or a adding sensors to the water for ASW sensors, whether it's a total ray sonar, uh, a, a variable depth sonar, um, some other kind of electronic warfare package, um, whatever package you want to put on a surface vessel, you're adding capacity so that a destroyer isn't the the, ve the vessel that's being used to uh, to provide that uh, capability, that mission accomplishment in a particular area, which frees the destroyer up to do more higher priority uh, missions that only they can do. Um, so we're excited about participating in this exercise and demonstrating that the technology is uh, is maturing to the point where we should be getting past just prototyping and be able to fleet to, to provide the fleet with that added uh, capability and capacity. Well, you know that was Over. one of the keys when when uh, Admiral Paparo, Commander of Pacific Fleet, has spoken about this. He talked about he wanted to see these ships actually integrating with operational ships on operational missions. That this was not all about experimentation. It was let's do real missions. That was part of part. Of, I was reiterated that. When the ships got to Japan and they did operate and uh, in, in, in transit, they were they were the Navy released multiple images of them operating with different types of American ships. In Japan, there was a, a whole series of uh, images that people clearly want to put out there of the ships operating with um, the Japanese um, FFM small frigate Magami, I think, was the ship. And, um, you know, so so they've, they've had experience doing that. It was obviously a good experience for the Japanese to, to be integrating with that. People got to see them. But um, but then, you know, um, Dan, uh, uh, sorry, Dave, you and I were at an ASNI conference a couple weeks ago, and a senior Navy official was speaking, and she didn't even mention uh, unmanned ships while ticking off a whole list of surface ship programs. And you asked a question about it, and she said, well, I, she, I think we still have a lot of experimentation still to do. Well, I'm sorry, the Admiral commanding the Pacific Fleet just kind of said, we're trying to not do experimentation here. How long can you keep doing this experimentation, says me. Um, and yet she doesn't even mention it except in response to the question. And then it's only in, in, a, in a sense of experimentation. Is there, is there, there has to be a sense of frustration from folks who are working to get this stuff, working it out there and operational and, and see the possibilities. Is there... The demand signal from the Navy is what I'm trying to get at. Do you do you know what do you know what the Navy wants? Both of you were inside the Navy. You're you were part of that organization. You know how it works. Um, now you're on the outside trying to make the organization satisfied. Do you know what they want? Do they know what they want? Dave, I'll start uh, with you. Yeah, I, I this is. We don't know very much. We, the big we, the United States, the technical world, the engineering world, doesn't know very much about unmanned service vehicles. Uh, all of these ships, all four, there's five in the fleet right now in the, in the Navy's USV fleet. Uh, four of them are deployed. Uh, all of them were bought by DARPA, ONR, DIU, non-traditional acquisition programs. Uh, so they've never been a program of record. They've never been in the, in the regular budget, if you will. And the effect of that, the first, uh, first ship, Sea Hunter, uh, was a DARPA program that was fielded in 2016. Here we are seven years later, 
and they've deployed operationally. That is light speed in the acquisition world. Uh, not a program of record, not in any budget explicitly, not in a program element. Uh, I think that's superb. And what that has done is delivered a tremendous capability, like Dan mentioned, to the fleet very, very quickly. Uh, we are learning about that. There isn't a doctrine associated with USVs. There isn't uh, uh, an organization or a structure other than uh, the uh, the one squadron to do this. So the, so the Navy has to learn what to do with these ships and how to operate them. And we've been doing that with uh, rim packs and local exercises in SoCal, Southern California op areas. And this deployment, as you have indicated, was a, was a step across the international day line, across the equator, into the Western Pacific, where I think we have learned a tremendous, uh, 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 a lot, a, a tremendous amount of information, knowledge, new knowledge about operating USVs. We certainly have within Lighthouse. We have, you know, hundreds of pages of lessons learned and and how to do things a little bit different, a little bit better. I'm sure the Navy has something uh, similar to that. And, and the point is, and, and my concern is that we do need to keep growing that knowledge through time. If we stop now then and, and take three or four or five or six years to put it into a program record, we're going to lose the momentum that we have so far. I would point out, and I, and I have pointed at this, this out in other forums, that the United States Navy right now has the largest surface autonomy fleet in the world. We are an autonomy superpower already. Five ships, medium USVs, uh, are uh, are in service. There's one more being uh, built down at Austell. Um, we have Task Force 59, which has hundreds, I believe, of small USVs that are in service. Task Force 49 is standing up. There are solicitations out there to buy uh, small USVs for them. I think you saw that Orca was accepted last week, a, a large diameter UUV by, that was accepted by the Navy from Boeing. And then I know that there are dozens, if not hundreds of UUVs and uh, small UUVs and gliders in, in Navy service. So the so Navy today in less than a decade has leaped to the front in terms of autonomy and using autonomy systems. And I think, uh, as Dan pointed out, that's critical to uh, moving forward. So we shouldn't lose our velocity and our momentum that we already have, but this is different than building DDGs or aircraft carriers. We already know everything there is to know about building those ships. We don't know very much about USV. So, so the approach has to be different as we continue to learn about what these ships can do and how to operate them in an operational environment. And that's a key difference. And that tells me uh, our, our, how we buy them, how we feel them is fundamentally different than what we have been doing over the last 70 years. Uh, Dan? Going back to the mission capability um, yeah. component, the Navy has to decide which missions can benefit the most from either a capacity or capability perspective, develop, continue to evolve the architecture, which which is the momentum that, that Dave's talking talking about there is trying to decide in that experimentation and the prototyping 
of the architecture? What's the command and control structure uh, in order to maximize the the utility of those vessels? Um, if if the Navy's not going to use those for added capability and capacity, the you know the commercial world is going that route anyway. Um, right now, wind farms, um, oil and gas, they have hundreds of USVs and UUVs that they use in the commercial world uh, in order to execute because it gives them capacity. They can do things that they otherwise would do with manned vessels and it would take a lot longer and be more effective, more costly rather, excuse me. Um, and so by taking the uh, the approach of, of or, or the analogy of capability and capacity versus um, mission set, right, which is what we have to get to, um, when the Navy decides what that looks like, uh, that's when they're going to be able to start delivering packages to the fleet, not just USVs. The USVs are the trucks that are carrying something. Uh, and it's the something that has to be um, put together in an architecture. Uh, and the utility that that then the fleet would get is provided by that. Um, and so um, as the Navy pushes forward with this, as Dave alluded to, hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of lessons learned uh, coming from this deployment uh, and things that could be updated or changed or modified or or, or TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that have been developed and aligned for the for using those in certain mission sets. Um, you know, keeping that momentum going is something that's going to be key for the Navy uh, going forward. From my perspective, Dan, th thanks for that because I think that's a <clears throat> that's a huge point. Um, you, you know, I, I think both you and uh, the Admiral make a great point in that um, there's not a lot new here in terms of buying a U, uh, you know, an un uncrewed vessel. I mean, industry does it. The Navy has done it in a variety of different ways, operating it, um, you, you know, supporting it. But where um, perhaps the rub may come in the future is deciding what missions those uncrewed vessels will um, uh, be a part of and then committing to that. Um, and I can't help but think of some of the lessons learned from LCS on that, where I feel like um, we as a Navy made the decision to go after this platform to do things in a different way. And it was ultimately the culture and maybe the indecision on the mission itself that that held us up. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe from your past experience with LCS and new programs um, some lessons learned or some thoughts that you might have on how to go about doing that in a way that we don't lose the lessons learned that the Admiral talked about, that we don't lose the momentum that we have now, and that we quickly get to a place where culturally we start to adopt this um, and don't think of these as DDGs, um, you know, others, that we actually view them for the the value that they provide to the the vast array of missions that the Navy has to do. So, Dan, you are personally involved in fielding LCS early in the program. So I'll, uh, I'll defer that question to you, Barbara. Sure. Um, yeah, as Dave alluded to, I stood up PMS 505, which was the Fleet Introduction and Sustainment Program Office for, for Littoral Combat Ship. Um, and I think, Chris, your your point about culture is, is right on. Um, if you're going to change, and LCS was one of the programs, that that changed an awful lot of things at the same time. It changed the manning construct. It changed the maintenance construct. It changed the employment construct. It changed the crewing construct. And it did all of these things at one time. That's a lot of change for the Navy and the bureaucracy and the uh, and and the and the system writ large uh, to absorb at one time. And and it we we proved that it was difficult to do. Um, and proved it in a number of uh, different ways in some in some cases over and over again. Um, 
when when you look at the change for US fees, the 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 construct and the culture has to adapt to where we're going. Um, it's no different than where, let's say, the Air Force was in the 2008-2007 timeframe with UAVs. Um, there was a reluctance to go down that path. There was a, you know, there was issues with it. There were concerns about it. There were cost budgetary issues with it. Um, there was concerns about training and how you're going to get the the pilots and how you're going to control them. Um, and there was a forcing function from the Secretary of Defense at the time that kind of that that pushed that over the edge and got the Air Force to now has squadrons and drones and schools and capabilities and full deploying packages that provide mission essential capability. Um, and it added capacity to the Air Force. They didn't have to fly fighter planes to execute a simple ISR mission, or they didn't have to develop new ISR planes because, and then have them fly with full crews. They could do it with, um, with, with UAVs. Um, and, and there are multiple versions of UAVs. That's the other piece of it. Um, that from a culture perspective, you're, you can't make one vessel and say it's going to meet every mission need because then it will make every mission need sub-optimized. Um, they're going to have to decide and pick in terms of size, capability, the endurance, the range, the speed, um, the, the core components that you design a, a ship around. You need to do that. They have to decide that. They have to decide how they're going to use those, both in terms of small, medium, large. Is it going to be super small, small, medium, medium, large, large, and extra large? I mean, you know, it'll depend upon what kind of missions they want them to execute as you develop it. It also goes into things from a culture perspective, like minimally manning. Um, very, very difficult to to build a ship that has people on it and unman it. It, it just doesn't happen. The way that you design for a long-duration unmanned mission is from the keel up. And then when you add all of the capabilities and the facilities and the water and the sewage and the food and the, that, that go along firefighting and the protection capabilities that are associated with manning a ship, you basically have a, ver a more expensive ship that would be the same size because now you have a manned ship that you then added autonomy capability to. Um, that isn't to say that there aren't going to be missions that require that. You just have to do it, again, culturally with your eyes wide open and say, for those ships, they're going to be more expensive than a, a similar manned vessel of the same size. It just, you know, it, when you think about it, it becomes a pretty obvious uh, conclusion that that's the path that you're going to go down because you're going to build the ship. It's going to have the capabilities with the people on it, and then you have to pay for the autonomy components of it. Um, in order to get that to work. When you're talking about the culture for, for, for the transition for LCS, you know, the sailors adapted fine. It was the rest of the culture in the bureaucracy and the bigger structure that struggled with it, right? The sailors are going to execute the mission that they're given. That's what they do, right? That's how, that's how they're going to behave. They're going to get it. They'll take it. They're going to break it. They're going to figure out new ways of of operating it, they're going to figure out new missions that are associated with how they work, um, and and that's the part where the faster that you get these capabilities to the fleet, the better and the and the more more rapidly you're going to evolve the capability that's associated with that's adding that capability and capacity that I referred to earlier from a mission perspective. That will then lead to the culture change at at the bigger bureaucratic level, and I don't mean uh, bureaucratic in a in a pejorative sense here. It's just the way we're set up. It's an organization. The Navy is set up that way. The companies are set up that way. It's just 
It's just how you deal with, with structure. But in order to the culture change has to be adapted in the bureaucracy for it to, to maintain and sustain uh, that capability. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely some things that we can learn um, that the Navy can learn, industry can learn, and, and, the, and the Navy has to get, I believe, has to get this capability, the USVs out into the, the hands of the sailors and let the operators play with them and use them um, and, and figure out how they're going to optimize their capabilities. And, and you saw some of that on this deployment, and I think they need to keep doing it. So one of the um, trends that is worldwide right now is more and more use of unmanned vehicles of all kinds. Aircraft, surface, undersea. Um, there's, no, there's no question about that. The U.S. Navy has long been a role model in terms of uh, in terms of any, anything really for dozens of navies. Um, a trend worldwide at the moment is in, in expanding the use of unmanned vehicles. Is to uh, navies are looking for small, adaptable vessels as motherships for unmanned platforms. Uh, during the unmanned service division deployment, uh, they are running around the Western Pacific with an electoral combat ship, USS Oakland, um, which is on deployment right now. One of uh, four or five is actually deployed out in the Western Pacific. And, you know, you hear all about L LCS and, well, they don't do what they're supposed to do. And they, we've never used blah, 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 blah. Well, one of the things that was an inherent uh, capability in that, in that ship was to operate unmanned vehicles in the air, on the surface and under the sea. And here we are seeing an LCS doing exactly what it was designed to do, being a mothership to USVs. Dan, I mean, you, you had to, come on, you had to feel a little good about seeing that, didn't you? But, you know, you know I mean. I, I did, I did like, I, I did like being in Sydney as, uh, as they all came in together um, with, with uh, USS Oakland leading the parade of, of ships that going into City Harbor. Um, that did make me feel good. It was, it was nice to see. And as you said, um, the, the even variant, the even number variant of, of LCS Oakland, uh, being one of them, um, you know, there's volume in that ship and it's a fantastic capability with volume comes flexibility of mission and they can change and modify what they're going to do and how they're going to execute that mission, um, almost overnight. Um, and that's been proven over and over again with that class of ship. And I think that the, the idea of the mothership, the tender, the, um, the, the, the SAG commander, the surface action group commander for, uh, for surface vessels. Um, they do they would do a great job with that, but I want to add too, that, you know, I, I talked to other DDG commanders who operate with them and they would love if they were put in, into an ASW mission, be able to have a few USVs with total ray, uh, sonars, you know, in the water that they're able to control and have them 20 miles away from them and drive around and, and be able to to be picket ships, be able to screen, be able to do um, some significant capabilities. And I think that's where we have to get to. When you start talking about um, AI uh, or the artificial intelligence, machine learning components and the algorithms that are associated with it, I think the navigation of the vessels is already there. It's mature. We understand that um, there's always going to be ways to improve it. The area in, in terms of the technology that needs to be improved is going to be in perception. How do you know what's out there? How do you detect in really bad weather uh, the floating log? And the answer is it becomes very difficult to detect. And then what are the chances of you bumping into a log um, in the middle of the ocean? And the answer is if you don't detect it, that could occur. The, the But that's a perception problem. That's a radar problem. It's an EOIR um, integration problem. Uh, and that can be worked independent of or in parallel with 
you know, your ability to say, what are the other packages? Because when you apply AI and ML to optimizing the mission sets, let's use it, put sonars in the water in terms of stationing, where they're going to go, the behaviors, how they're going to drive, what direction they're going to go. Um, all of that can be improved with the technology that currently exists today. Um, and that's, again, adding capability uh, and capacity to the to the Navy. So uh, let's, uh, Dave, I'd like to go back to you for this one. And that is, Obviously, this has been a huge mission, this deployment, but these are all small vessels. These are not transoceanic vessels. They're 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 small. Um, the Pacific is a big ocean. They've encountered a variety of uh, weather here, a variety of sea states. Um, they're going to get back, and they're going to get. I mean, logic says they're all going to be pretty beat up. Um, they only have a, the Navy only has a handful of these ships. Uh, the, one of them, uh, one of the, one of the overlord boats is, is worn out and about to be, um, sold, taken out of service. Another one will come into service this year, but that's a wash out one in one. Um, these four, these four, they get back, you wonder what their future is going to hold. Um, the medium and large unmanned service vessel programs are not happening with the, with any alacrity at all now. Um, each has its own situation, but the MUSV is uh, the, the medium one. Is 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 um, there was only one boat, and it's not working. Uh, it's 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 stalled. Um, LUSV, the larger one, is is in this um, two year analytical period that doesn't even end until September. Um, this coming September, after which more decisions are, are to be made, Congress itself is frustrated with the lack of progress on those two programs, and and both houses, but both 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 appropriation bills, would there be an appropriation bill, um, are are cutting funding for unmanned. Um, what the, and the Navy's not really talking about it, not to the extent that you would think they would have talked about it. What's what's the future here? So uh, you've dwelled on the negatives, which yeah. is a tendency. Uh, I would dwell on the strengths. What are the strengths of medium USVs? They're commercial. Commercial platforms, particularly the overload, overload ships, are built for the oil industry. And the oil industry expects 100% uh, uh, reliability and time on station. So uh, I just wrote an article in the Naval Engineers Journal, talked about DDG readiness, and it's uh, four to make one. Uh, four, you have to buy four ships to have one deployed. Uh, with with uh, commercial ships, it's four to make four. They're built to a 95%, 98% reliability standard. If you're not steaming, you're not making money in the commercial world. So, and, and without a crew or a minimal crew, uh, uh, you, you don't have that expense. So, so four USVs can be on station pretty much all the time. You take two weeks off a year, three weeks off a year. That's some of the new knowledge we need to get. How beat up are they? How, how much maintenance do they really need? Uh, DDGs and other ships need a lot. I would offer that MUSVs, the strength of them is they don't need much at all. 
And if you don't have a crew, you don't have to come in on the weekends to go to soccer games and baseball games. You don't have to come in to get uh, sailors to school or to get training. Uh, that's all done uh, ashore. So uh, you're right about the big Pacific Ocean, but we have forward bases in Guam and other places. And those ships could be forward deployed with a 90% on station time, 95% on station time. It's all commercial maintenance. We've proven that. So they can be worked in boat yards and yacht yards. They don't impede or impair any of the military facilities other than perhaps pier space. Uh, and and so their strengths are high op tempo, uh, easy maintenance, uh, high readiness, and uh, and and flexibility in terms of mission packages. So, you know, you and Dan have both talked about uh, mission suites. That's the fleet. The fleet uh, knows what they need, and that's the demand signal. You saw that with Task Force Fifty Nine. Uh, they set a pretty high bar and demand signal. And that has uh, winnowed out a lot of competitors. So the mission packages that go on these ships are the key. And that really is the next step. What does the fleet want to do with these platforms? Dan laid out a scenario with uh, potentially three or four or five tail-equipped uh, MUSVs operating with a, a DDG and a helicopter. Now you've got a, a very large... Uh, service action group, Wolfpack even, I would say, that's out there with a significant capability to dozens of miles, if not hundreds of miles of ocean, all being tracked simultaneously, uh, all being surveilled simultaneously with weapons uh, on the ship, on the DDG and on the helicopter and a distributed sensor suite. That's pretty powerful. That's that's kind of a big deal, I think, in a in a uh, in a Western Pacific environment. And then you have all the uh, C4 ISR, C5 ISR uh, capability that we can't talk about here. Uh, so, so you have a platform which is easy to maintain, very high op tempo, high readiness, forward deployed, uh, available in quantity, relatively inexpensive. Uh, those are the strengths of this platform. And, uh, and I think those are the things we should be dwelling on not the uh, not the negatives. Uh, I would draw a parallel to aviation in the 1920s and 1930s. You had battleships and airplanes. Battleships have nine, 12 guns firing Volkswagen-sized shells. Airplanes can carry one 500-pound bomb. Obviously, they're not very capable. Obviously, they're not going to win any sea battles. Well, it turned out that when you have 100 airplanes on an aircraft carrier, each one carrying a 1,000-pound bomb or 500-pound bombs, and they can go three, 400 miles, that's way better than a battleship. And, and that required a significant change in our thinking about how we fight in the maritime domain. And, and I believe that uh, uncrewed or minimally crewed or optionally crewed USVs require that same level of intellectual change by the Navy when addressing maritime warfare. Uh, Fifth Fleet has done it. Fourth Fleet is doing it. And I think Pack Fleet, Pacific Fleet, with this deployment, has done it as well. And now's the time to proceed forward with that, uh, leveraging the strengths and the opportunities that uh, USVs present, rather than dwelling on the negatives and, and what they can't do and, and those sorts of things. Over. Yeah, sir. I mean, you you make a you make a great point. Um, and we we talked about culture. 
How much responsibility or opportunity does industry have, um, whether it's Lidos uh, after this deployment, whether it's L3? Um, I mean, you know, Dan talked about all the different elements that that kind of go into making up this culture um, ecosystem. But I mean, your, you know, the last three minutes, I, I think, are very important. How responsible do you feel or, or should other members of industry feel to carry that forward? Where it may take the Navy, be, and, and you know we've all lived it. It may take the Navy a while to kind of come to a uh, um, a, a clear position. But I mean, you, you have seen unique things in your position, and I I worry that you know if industry hides behind the hey we're here to support the customer, we're not going to move as fast as we could, knowing what we know. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't want to put you on the spot and make a commitment for, for Lidos, but I mean, you've been on both sides of this. What, what role should industry play in kind of bringing along a reticent Congress, bringing along a reticent NAVC or, or, or E-ring um, just because that's the way they are? And honestly, that's probably the way we need them to be. Um, wh where do you see industry playing into this? I think industry is an innovation engine for the Navy. Industry has always been that for the Navy since before the Civil War. Uh, industry brings forward ideas, unfiltered in many cases. A lot of them are crazy, uh, but I point to the USS Monitor. Uh, screw propeller with a turret and uh, ironclad, no sails, hardly any sailors. I mean, what are you talking about? Boom. That was the best idea going in 1862. Uh, industry bought uh, brought aviation to the Navy. Uh, industry bought nuclear brought nuclear power to the Navy. Industry bought Aegis to the Navy. I think industry is an innovation engine. It's up to the Navy to to solicit those ideas, filter them, uh, pick the ones that uh, look good, uh, put them in the fleet. Let the sailors do what Dan described, the sailors uh, being sailors and saying, don't buy this again. Don't do this again. Oh, that stuff is really good. We like that. Uh, and, and industry can be that innovation driver for the Navy, just like industry has been the innovation driver in the IT world, in the cloud world, in the technology world, more than, than I could name. And, and you're familiar with all of them. That's what industry does. That's that's a uh, that's what a capitalist industry and a capitalist society does is create innovation, create business opportunities, industries in, in this to make money, obviously, and that drives innovation. And the Navy can leverage that, has leveraged that, and I think should continue to leverage that. And in the un, un, uh, uncrewed autonomous world, uh, industry is doing that in other areas like Dan described. And I think uh, we can continue to do that. It's not just Lidos. Uh, there are dozens of companies that are doing this, as demonstrated in, uh, in Task Force 59. So there is a huge amount of innovation out there, uh, out here, excuse me. And, uh, and I would say the Navy needs to open the door to that. And I'm seeing that. Secretary Del Toro has done some tremendously progressive and innovative things organizationally in the last six months to open those doors and to welcome industry in inside the tent into the sanctum sectorums and start bringing those and to bring those good ideas forward. Uh, how the Navy chooses to execute them from a budget and a financial and programmatic perspective uh, perspective is, is important and relevant, uh, which is why I pointed out that 
This is the seven years we've gone from nothing to the world's largest USV fleet. Uh, that's impressive. That says the Navy can do it. We have that history, and I think we can do it moving forward. The Navy can do it moving forward with industry uh, helping lead the way. Over. I hope you're right. Um, I, I think uh, I think you're very much on onto something, and uh, I, I think this has been a great conversation as we kick off um, our collective uh, discussion and the podcast coverage of Surface Navy. Um, there's going to be a lot of discussion uh, this week um, about uh, this deployment, uh, about uncrewed in general, and so we couldn't be happier to have you guys uh, join us. Uh, to get people thinking about that even before they uh, step foot into the Hyatt there in Crystal City. We've been talking to Dave Lewis and Dan Britzenhofer of Lidos. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on uh, in the months and weeks to come uh, to continue this conversation. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Thanks yeah, thanks for having us. All right. Well, before we go, hours before we recorded this podcast, the Washington Post came out with a rare editorial supporting the U.S. Navy, headlined, A Big Navy is Vital. A More Lethal One Would Be Even Better. Well, that's sort of the weekly mantra for this podcast. Well, it's nice to see, Chris, briefly, what did you think about this unexpected plug from the old WASHPO? So I would tell our readers, don't read beyond that headline. That's it. If you just take away from that headline, I agree with the op-ed from the Post. Now, where they lose me is, is I made the mistake of continuing to read. And essentially what this comes down to is it's an argument um, for maintenance versus growing the force. Um, and as all of our listeners know, that's a false argument. Um, you cannot think about a, a world-class Navy in the context of either growing um, or maintaining. We know that you have to grow, you have to maintain, and you have to modernize if you want to compete in today's world. So I, I you know, I give the post A for effort. I give them C minus for delivery. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think they missed the story. They missed the big story. Uh, again, they, as you said, they're stuck in this false equivalency of uh, either or, you know, either more ships or maintenance or, or keep up the ones you have. It, it's not an either-or thing, folks. It's all part of the same picture. And it would be nice if we talked more about the presence mission that's going on right now. And frankly, the the real story to me is not just more, more money for the Navy. It's taking the Pentagon's already enormous budget and redirecting a good portion of that into the Navy, which right now, I mean, for, we, we, have a, we have a potential conflict with China, which is a maritime conflict. More than anything else, it's definitely not a land conflict. And we have a we have a Navy presence mission going on right now that's in, never been on display any more than it has been the last few months in the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Aden. It's just amazing. And that stuff comes with with uh, with you have to you have to make the investment to keep that going. I would like to see a redirection, as happened, by the way, 20 years ago when the United States was getting into extended land warfare, land wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and a great deal of the Pentagon budget was redirected away, away from the Navy, away from the Air Force, into the Army. And if you want to build a new Army, uh, it, it, it can be done a whole lot faster than building a new Air Force and especially a new Navy. This stuff takes a long time, and it um, the, the time for the investment is now. I, I think they. I would like to have seen them talk about a reinvestment, but we do like the headline. It's true. So, a big navy 
is vital. You got us there. Well, folks, next week, both of us will be at the annual Surface Navy Symposium in Crystal City, just across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. We will be reporting from there during the week. And if you see us, be sure to stop and say hi. We'd love to meet you and hear from you. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers Podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. And by HII. HII is the largest supplier of surface combat ships to the U.S. Navy. HII is delivering the advantage. Learn more about HII at the Surface Navy's 36th National Symposium in Crystal City, Virginia, from January 9th to 11th. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>